Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is John Shepherd, and the joy of serving here as one of the pastors, I get to primarily work with student ministries, which means I work with the children's team, the youth, and the young adults to be a part of those teams. And uh, that means that this week is one of my favorite weeks in the whole year, uh, where we get to invite, as you've been hearing, hundreds of kids from our communities in to be able to show and to tell them of the great love that Christ has for them. And it's been so exciting even this summer to watch the way that the Lord has been working in the lives of our, of our students and our teens and look forward to what the Lord's going to do in the next, even the next week with the kids who will be here, the teenagers who will be leading, who will be carrying the lion's share of the work. That's all I get? I'm trying to step my dad joke game up. Okay, sorry. That was, uh, uh, okay. Anyways, <laughs> looking forward to all that the Lord is going to do uh, in this week and just been exciting to watch the Lord work in our young people. But it's not just been the young people the Lord is at work in. He is at work in Chelton, in, in all of us. And it's been so fun and exciting to hear the stories that have come out of the series that we're in, this First Peter series, Strangers, Loving from the Margins, and, and just been hearing stories as to way, of the ways that, that the Lord is taking and shaping us and making us more like himself. Um, I'm hearing stories about how many of us are starting to see ourselves the way that God sees and describes us, which is that we really are strangers. We really are exiles and aliens in this world. And that shows itself when we hear the news or something comes across our social media page in which doesn't align with the Christian worldview, and we're starting to see it not as something to play the victim under, but recognizing this is actually what we're to expect. Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. And in the face of that reality, as Christians and as a biblical worldview are being pushed further to the margins, we don't respond in fear by hiding We don't respond in fear by aggression, which is just fear wearing a mask, but instead we respond in love. It's been neat to see the Lord make this more and more true in my own life and to be able to see and hear it taking place in your lives as well. Um, And and growing in us is a heart for our neighbors and our coworkers and friends, a a growing desire for us to know them and to love them, and and we're taking little baby steps of faith, and that's really where uh, we're heading as we've been discussing this loving from the margins And the margins really are an incredible place for the gospel to move forward in power because from the margins, the gospel is the power. It's not our social position or our ability to influence the culture, but it's simply the word of God and the spirit of God and the movement of God, and he receives the glory as he transforms lives. And so this morning, as we go back into 1 Peter, uh, we'll be in chapter 4, and we're going to see a lot of the same. So if you have your scripture, I hope you do, uh, if open that with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be beginning in verse 7, and we'll be going through verse 11 this morning, just our little section. Give you a second to, to find it there. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and, so, and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. 
If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. If you look at the way this passage starts, it starts off with this end of all things is near. And you can almost, sounds a little doomsday-ish of Peter, right? You can almost picture him on the corner. He's got his picket sign. The end is near. He's got his sandwich board over him and he's yelling out with the megaphone, the end is near. And yet it's 2019 last I checked. Peter wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. How is the end near for him and it hasn't come yet? What do, we, what do we do with that? Is Peter wrong? Well, Peter can say that because since the resurrection of Christ, we are in what the Bible describes as the last days. The end of human history is near. Looking forward to Christ's return, our salvation will be fully experienced in that moment when he returns. And yet now we're waiting. Romans says that our salvation is nearer than when we first believe, and that has been true for the last 2,000 years, and yet it still is near. It's still coming. And as we think about the return of Christ, all too often we try to pinpoint when that will be, and just throwing this out there, that hasn't really worked out very well in history. Um, and that's not really the point, to try and figure out the exact day, but instead we're to live as if it's today. Live ready because he will return, as Scripture says, like a thief in the night when you're unexpected. And Scripture is full with passages that say the return of Christ is near. It's often referred to as the day of the Lord, the great day. The day in which Jesus returns and God will judge with rightness and justice and every knee will bow before Christ and all things will be made right in this world. And yet it really seems like God's a little bit slow on this, right? It's been 2,000 years. Kind of looking at this and going, what's going on? Why? We're still waiting as the world still seems to be falling apart. We're waiting for things to be made right. We're not the first to make that observation or maybe to ask that question. In fact, Peter in his second letter addresses this idea. In 2 Peter 3.9, says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. The promise Peter is referring to here is the promise of Christ's return. The Lord's not slow in the way that some understand slowness. Instead, not slow, but it's patience. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Which means that as we sit in this period between Christ's first coming and his second coming, which we're waiting for, which is near We're waiting there because God's kindness, his patience, is leading to repentance. Which is exactly why we're in this study. Why we're looking at 1 Peter, why we're discussing what does it look like to love from the margins of strangers. Because as God's children, our hearts begin to look more like our daddy's hearts. And we, as we wait for his return, are ones who feel inside of us, see evidence in our lives, a growing desire, the same desire that our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, and the ends of the earth would know and experience the love of Christ, that they would turn to Christ in repentance. It's really what we're doing in 1 Peter, exploring and, and wanting to see grow this desire of loving from the margins. And that's really where this passage is all about as well in 1 Peter 4. Peter begins by reminding his readers that the end of all things is near. It's this big kind of epic and cosmic statement, right? The end of all things is near. And what you'd expect to come next would be something that would match it in its 
epicness and its hugeness, it would be on the same scale. You'd expect it to be like the Tim McGraw song from 2004, Live Like You Were Dying. Anybody know that song? If you don't, the story behind it goes like this. You don't actually even be a country music fan. You might know this. In the song, a man discovers that he's terminally ill. His end is near. And so he decides to do big stuff, epic stuff. Anybody know what he did? He went, I won't sing it. He went skydiving. He went Rocky Mountain climbing. And he went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. A couple of us know this song. Those are huge things. Those are epic, bucketless things. The end of his life is near, so I'm going to do big things. And you'd expect that to be exactly what Peter does, wouldn't you? The end of all things is near. So do big things for God. Attempt and do amazing things. Go get them, guys. And yet, when you read what he says, it doesn't seem very epic, does it? He says, the end of all things is near, so be faithful in the ordinary things of Christ. Like, pray for people. Like, greet your neighbors when you see them. Like, take a genuine interest in your coworkers' lives. Invite people into your home to share a meal. Share your toys, your tools, your stuff. Doesn't quite add up to me. The end of all things is near, so offer hospitality. Does seem like ordinary Small things, not very epic or cosmic in the way that the end of all things is. And we're surprised by this, and yet we really shouldn't be, right? If we look at the way that God has worked throughout all of human history, he has always taken the small, the weak, the ordinary, the mundane, and the unexpected and used them to move his kingdom forward. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, my favorite line, and the things that are not, things that don't even seem like things, to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. And it feels so backwards to us because you and I go into the ordinary stuff, the normal stuff of life, and we think that it has almost no bearing on the kingdom of God. It's kind of just sitting over here in its own section. The problem is that's not true. The great reformer Martin Luther in the early 1500s was asked a question. He was asked, if you knew that, the day, that, that today would be the end of the world, what would you do? His answer was, I'd plant a tree. And I'm like, what? You'd plant a tree? Because you and I have this understanding that our character, our relationship with God, the real important things in life are the big things. We think that the big stuff in life is really who we are, but instead, who we really are, what really shapes us are not the big things in life, but it's the series of small things. It's the faithfulness in the little areas of life. And the more we believe that, the more our ordinary You know, the stuff that takes up 99% of our mundane lives, the stuff that's not really worthy of an Instagram post, gets transformed. Things like caring for the kids every day, going to work or class or doing homework, making dinner, unloading and loading the dishwasher again, mowing the grass, taking out the trash, all these small, ordinary, mundane things, they're not insignificant. They're kingdom work. 
Jesus shows this in Matthew chapter 13 where he takes two really small, tiny things and says, this is the kingdom of heaven. He says, it's like a mustard seed. This tiny little seed that if I put a mustard seed in your hand, you wouldn't even feel it's there if your eyes were closed. You wouldn't even know it's there. And yet he says that mustard seed is what grows into this great tree. That tiny little thing is what grows. The kingdom of heaven. He goes on and he says, or it's like a little bit of yeast that gets mixed into 60 pounds of flour. You put some yeast in 60 pounds of flour and you mix it together, you can't find the yeast. It's essentially invisible. And yet that thing that seems so invisible is what rises unseen below the surface, raising the whole loaf. So this morning, if your life is filled with the mundane, ordinary, basically boring things of life, which I think we all are, you should be encouraged. Because if you are united with Christ by faith, then all of the earth is holy ground. Everything is sacred. It's all kingdom work. Lord, just give us the eyes to see the ordinary the way that you do. You look at the end of this section in verse 11, we've got this, this big picture of the end of all things is near, so be faithful in the little with the end, so that in all things Christ may be praised through Christ, or so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus, to him be the glory and power forever and ever, amen. God uses the small things to grow his kingdom so that he receives the glory. So Peter starts and says, the kingdom, the return of Christ is near. The end of all things is near. And that's not just some nice statement. Every time that the apostles and the the writers of Scripture refer to the coming of Christ, it's always meant to drive and to stimulate Christians towards godly living, towards action in this world. And the same is true in this passage. And Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, verse 7, and he gives a couple of things that this should drive us towards. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Be alert, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, thinking rightly, submitting your worldview to the way that God describes reality. Submitting your will to his will, which results in prayer. And I think we have a very small understanding of prayer, at least I do. Maybe you've been in a situation like this where a friend is, is sharing something that's going on in their life and you just want to really help. And you find yourself with no idea of how to help. And so you say something like this. Well, all I can do is pray. Have you ever said that? Like, you ever felt that way before? Just a really small view of prayer. Yet if we kind of step back and look and go, what, what do we just say if I say I'll pray for you? You're recognizing at least two things. Number one, you're recognizing your limits as a human. You're looking going, I'm too small. In fact, I'm actually too small to even change my own heart. I can't affect your world and mine, and <sighs> I have limits. I'm finite. But prayer takes that and turns it to the one who is infinite, the one who is able, and has said, I have compassion on those who are in need, and I move towards people. So what feels like the smallest gift you can do is actually an incredible gift. The end of all things is near. Therefore, above all, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another deeply 
Keep growing in your love for one another. Love for others is a true mark of a Christian. It's the crown jewel of a transformed life. Jesus, in John chapter 13, looks at his followers and said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. See, we are those who have experienced the love of Christ in which he laid down his life for us, which transforms us and makes us people who more and more willingly and more and more regularly lay down our lives to serve someone else. That's what love is. In fact, Jesus was asked, and many of you are familiar with this passage, he was asked, what's the most important thing? Summarize the Bible. And what's the answer? Love God with everything you have and everything you are, which will result in you loving your neighbor as yourself. And really, we're not going to say anything more about that this morning because we're going to spend the whole fall on this. We're really going to take some time and spend the whole fall sitting on this passage and putting some flesh on what does it look like to love our neighbor as ourselves. So hope you'll stay tuned for that. The end of all things is near. Therefore, verse 10, serve one another. You should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Serving with one another with our gifts, whatever those are, because every single thing that we have is a gift. It's all received. Every ability, personality trait, job, your money, your stuff, every talent you have has all been received, and it's God's grace in various forms used to serve others. And again, we're going to stop there because next week that's where we'll be spending some time. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at the one that I skipped, the, the piece that I skipped that's kind of sandwiched in between the call to love one another deeply and to serve one another. And that's in verse 9 where the Apostle Peter says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I don't know what you think is when, you, when you see that verse in this list of things, but to me, I hear the little Sesame Street song, one of these things just doesn't belong. Like, you know, I got to stop singing enough music for today. But it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem to fit. Pray, love, serve, all really heavy biblical concepts, things that we're commanded to over and over again. And then there's offer hospitality, and it just doesn't seem like it belongs in there. And why? Why has it been placed there? What is this deal with hospitality? I think it's put there on purpose as an example of going, what does it look like to love and to serve? Well, one example of that is hospitality. And if we, in 2019, want to be people who love from the margins, it cannot be done outside of hospitality. It can't be done. So what is it? The dictionary defines hospitality as the friendly reception and treatment of guests or strangers, or the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, and generous way. And I was trying to think about this for a little while and found some different resources. One of them, Rosaria Butterfield's uh, The Gospel Comes with the House Key. We've talked about that a couple of times before up here. What is, what is unique about Christian hospitality? And kind of peel, pulled together, piecemeal together a couple of definitions and put this together. So if you want to find something better, that'd be great. I'd love to see it. This is uh, what we'll work with at least this morning. Hospitality is opening your heart and home to share your life in a way that invites strangers to become neighbors and neighbors to become family. Opening your heart and your home to share your life in a way that invites strangers to become neighbors and neighbors to become family. Hospitality is a posture. It's a mentality more than it is a set, defined series of actions. It's a mentality that pervades all you do, inviting people deeper into your life. 
And right away, we're going to pause, and this commercial break will be brought to you by Pinterest and Instagram. Because thanks to Pinterest and Instagram, we have some faulty ideas as to what hospitality must be. So we look at things like Pinterest, and then we look at our own homes, and we compare our houses and our living rooms to the perfectly staged, pristine things that make up a Pinterest site. I don't know if that's the right word. Magazines. You look at these and you go, well, my house doesn't look like that. And if you ever tried one of the recipes that are on Pinterest, it usually doesn't turn out like that either. And so you just look at it and you go, I can't do this. This hospitality thing is too much. I'm too, my house is too messy. I can't invite people in. If this is the standard, I can't rise to that. So I'm out. Or we look at Instagram and we look at our lives and we compare it to everyone else's perfectly filtered life and we think, not only is my house too messy, I'm too messy. They've got it all put together. So I can't invite people to know me, to be a part of my life, because I'm a mess. I don't, I don't measure up to that. So hospitality is not an option, I'm out. We have to distinguish between two types of hospitality. First one is Christian hospitality. Second one is, let's call it Southern hospitality. Let's call it entertaining. Because here's what entertaining is. Entertaining is working to impress people at an arm's length, which means that the most important thing is that they're impressed with my home. They're impressed with my life. They're impressed with my stuff. They're impressed with my kids. They're impressed with me, but at a little bit of a distance. the filtered version of ourselves. Christian hospitality is more than that. It's welcoming others into your life, warts and all. You ever heard that phrase, warts and all? It supposedly originated with this guy, Lord Oliver Cromwell, who was Lord Protector of England in the mid-1600s. And Cromwell, just like most rich and powerful men in his day, would sit down for a portrait. And guess what? Their portraits were filtered, just like Instagram. And what they would do is the artist would sit across from them and they would work really hard to flatter the person whose portrait they were painting, which is why you see, if you look close enough, you can see some imperfections on Lord Oliver Cromwell. You see the warts, literally. Because he wasn't a fan of this kind of filtered fakeness, but he looked and he said, no, paint me as I am, warts and all. Hashtag no filter. But this is exactly what Christian hospitality is. Christian hospitality says, come and be a part of my life and I want to be a part of yours, not the fake I've got it all put together way and let's pretend here where everything is perfect and tidied up. It's an invitation into genuine relationship. Come and know me and be known by me. It's not about the cleanness of your home or even the cleanness of your lives. It's inviting people to actually be a part of life with you. Refusing to offer only the Instagram-filtered, Pinterest-approved version of yourself, which we have come to expect because of social media. That's entertaining. Christian hospitality says, come and know me, warts and all. And notice where Peter begins this call. He begins it inside the church. He says, offer hospitality to one another. And who is he writing to? He's writing to the church. He's looking at us and saying, this has to be first present in here. If, as he said in chapter 3, the assumption is that the world will be watching, and the world will have questions, and they will be thinking, 
where do you get this hope? Where is this transformed life coming from? That's assumption that's built on the fact that we would be embodying this ourselves. So let's talk about this as a church body and even as individuals who make up the church. As a church, when we're gathered here, when guests come in to the morning service, when guests come to youth group, when guests come to young adults, when guests come to tapestry Bible study or men's groups, what do they experience? What do those who aren't even guests but still feel like guests experience? Do they experience a welcoming come as you are and be known, an engagement with them? Or do our guests come in the front door and leave without being known or pursued? What about individually as a church or individually as believers who make up the church? Who are you connected with? How are you extending hospitality to those around you? Are you looking for people's needs that you can meet and serve as an act of love? How are you inviting those inside the church to actually know you, warts and all? In Acts chapter 2, we see a picture of the way that the early church began to live this out. And they were devoted to one another. Essentially, what happens is they practice hospitality with one another. And the world outside watched, and the Lord, it says, added to their number daily those who were being saved. And as we do that inside the church, it will come up out of us and overflow into the world around us. Begin to offer, as most commands and scriptures are called to do, is that we would begin to overflow into the world around us. And we're not only to offer hospitality to those inside the church, we're even to invite in those who are outside our neighbors, and even strangers. And we have to pause again because when we hear about inviting unbelievers, what normally happens is we think, let's invite them to a church service or an event for the professionals to do it, for the pastors and the greeters on the way in to welcome them. The problem is Peter just doesn't allow for that. There's no qualification on who this is. This is to the church. This is to us. This is to you. I don't think it's wrong to invite someone to church. Don't hear me wrong. I just think that if you're going to invite them to church, you should first invite them to dinner. Because the hope for the unbelieving neighbors is not that they come to us, but that God sends us to them. So this call to offer hospitality is one that pushes us out of being an observer, a consumer, and into an active participant because that is how God has made you to be. You are not designed and created to sit and watch church to actively be a part of the mission of God, offering hospitality to both those inside and outside the church. I'm going to push one more time on something that's a little more uncomfortable. When we do offer hospitality, who's it normally to? Are we continually offering it to the people, the same people who are already well-connected? Or do we have eyes to see those around us who are longing for someone to invite them in, to invite them to the party, to the dinner, for a play date. Jesus poked right at this when he was a guest at someone's house in Luke 14. Jesus said to his host, who had a big party with all of his friends and rich, rich family and friends, he says this, he says, when you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And I am not saying, and Jesus is not saying, you may never hang out with your friends. But it does push you to ask, do you ever intentionally invite people 
into your life and into your home who do not look like you, who do not think like you, who do not believe what you do, who don't even worship the same God. What if we're sitting here and we're going, wow, I want this. I want to grow in this. I have no idea where to start. What does this look like? First thing I think we need to recognize is that hospitality, hospitality excuse me, is an art that needs to be developed. It's not a formula. If you think about art, uh, many of you know Jolie and I have two kids. Carter is our son. He's six, going to be seven soon, and Cameron is four. And uh, we are learning all about art. And Cameron, who's four, it's adorable. It's just not really good art. Um, she drew a card for a friend the other day. I'm, I'm allowed to say this because I'm dad. You're not allowed to say this about my kids' art. It's amazing, right? But I can say it's not that great, but it's, I love it still. We have it all over the house. Cameron drew a card for a friend. And, you know, you look at kids' art and you go, tell me about it because <laughs> I don't know what that is, right? So tell me about it. And she goes, well, that's a tree. I said, no, that's a circle. <laughs> I didn't say that out loud. It's just in my head. I go, that's a circle. And that's a doggy. That's just another circle, actually, right? And you look and you go, that's just, it's, it's not that clear. It's not that good. Now, our seven-year-old, almost seven-year-old, is, he's, he's getting pretty good. I can tell what all of his drawings are. I can tell. And we know that Scripture calls us children of God, yet the problem is we all think we're adult children. We all think we're grown children. What if you're just a child? What if I'm just a child? What if we stop taking ourselves so seriously? What if we were willing to step into the freedom that Christ has won for us and be willing to try some things, practice our artwork, knowing that it's not going to be Pinterest approved? It's not going to be worthy of an Instagram post, but we just try. Because if hospitality is inviting strangers to be neighbors, maybe it starts with we just become people that welcome and greet those that we run into. We begin to engage them in small ways rather than ignoring them, rather than waiting for our neighbors to bring their trash cans back before we go get ours to avoid that thing, talking. What if we actually took them at the same time so that we could look at them and engage them in conversation, greet them, ask a question, Listen, offer an open invitation. Hey, if you ever need anything, the door's always open. Come get us. We'd love to help. Start looking for small ways to serve. And if it's about making strangers neighbors and neighbors family, then perhaps those interactions with others start on neutral turf, the sidewalk, the break room, the the soccer field, but slowly become more intentional and more personal. Maybe you go out for coffee with your neighbor or you invite your coworker out for beer after work. Maybe that play date that was at the park first becomes a play date in your yard, and eventually we invite them over for dinner. Amazing how many interactions that Jesus has with people over food and around the table. Just read the Gospels and look for it. What if we started to try things, try to develop our art? What if we try and grow in this? And notice, too, that Peter doesn't just say offer hospitality, but he also qualifies it. He says offer hospitality without grumbling. Why does he add that on there? Well, we all know. Because it's easy. Because it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. 
which means you have to plan for it and prepare for it. You have to budget your money. You have to budget your energy. You have to budget your time. Say no to things. The truth is, for many of us, this is incredibly challenging. It sounds simple, but it's not. We have a lot of excuses. Maybe it's our house, it's our family, it's our personalities or our temperament. Maybe it's our finances, our schedules. We have lots of reasons why we can't or don't want to show hospitality to others in this way. It's flat out scary to invite people into your home and invite people into your world. It's a risk, but it's an essential risk. Because really, the thing that's at stake is the gospel. Truth is, this little, what seems to be insignificant call to Christians to offer hospitality is not small at all. It's actually an embodying and a reenacting of the gospel. You and I will only offer hospitality to others to the extent that we have received it from God. You'll only invite others into our world to the same degree which we recognize God's hospitality towards us. So what do we do? We rehearse the gospel. We remind ourselves of what Jesus has done, and we allow that to transform us. And here's the gospel, that Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus saw you when you were a stranger outside of his family, and he was moved by compassion and love for you to someone who was totally unlike him. And Jesus became your neighbor. He moved into your neighborhood. He became like one of us. Why? So that he could invite you to be a part of his family, to be known by him, And what did it cost him? A lot. It cost him his life. But for the joy that was set before him, the joy of inviting you and I to know him and to be known by him, he endured the cross, he paid the cost, and for him, it was worth it. So you could know him and be known by him, warts and all. That's how serious God is about hospitality. And you and I have the privilege of inviting others into the same, of giving them a taste of what it means to be loved by God as we do something as ordinary as offer hospitality. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you because you moved towards us first. You saw us in our need, and you offered hospitality to us. Jesus, you became like us so that we could be with you. But Lord, would you remind us again of your kindness and your goodness in our lives? Would you transform us? Make us those who are eager to offer hospitality. As simple as that may be, we offer kindness in the name of Jesus. Lord, would you draw out our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends to yourself? Would you call them to yourself? And we want to be faithful. We want to offer ourselves to you in whatever way you choose to use us. And we ask all of this for our own good, for our own joy, and for your glory, and so that the kingdom of God would move forward in our communities. We pray that all in Jesus' name.